yeah, I think we'll start now. So good afternoon, everyone uh, from London. My name is Reem Turkmani. Uh, I'm a research fellow at LSE London Ideas, and I will be chairing this event today, which is organized by the LSE Middle East Center. Uh, our event is titled uh, with the name, uh, same name of the book written by uh, our speakers, The Middle East Crisis Factory, Tyranny, Resilience and Resistance. Um, uh, our, our event today will be run like a conversation. So I will be asking some questions uh, to Iyad and uh, Ahmad, and that will last for about half an hour, and then we will open it for uh, question and answer. So uh, if you have any question, please type it uh, in the question and answer box. Uh, at the bottom of your screen and not in the chat box, please. Uh, we will then address the questions to the speakers. Please note that this event will be recorded and will also be live streamed on Facebook. The event is also being simultaneously interpreted into Arabic. Uh, so if you would like to listen to the Arabic, please click on the interpretation button on the bottom right uh, uh, hand side of your screen. I'll repeat this in Arabic. هذه الفعالية سيكون هناك ترجمة فورية إلى اللغة العربية. فإذا أردتم الاستماع إلى الترجمة العربية، أرجو الضغط على الزر المخصص للترجمة الفورية في الزاوية اليمنى في أسفل الشاشة. If you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Middle East. Uh, so uh, with this, I'll uh, end and we'll uh, introduce our uh, speakers. Uh, welcome Iyad and Ahmad. Uh, Iyad al-Baghdadi uh, is a Palestinian writer, an activist, and entrepreneur. An entrepreneur. Uh, he is the co-founder and president of the Kawakibi Foundation. Uh, and he was jailed and expelled from his lifelong home in the United Arab Emirates for human rights activism. Uh, today, he lives in Oslo, where he was granted asylum. Uh, Iyad is a fellow at the Norwegian liberal think tank, Civita, uh, and a board member of the uh, uh, Munathara, which is the uh, Arabic debate uh, NGO. Uh, Ahmad Gantash is a British Libyan activist and entrepreneur. He is also the co-founder and director of uh, the Kawakibi uh, Foundation and hosts the Arab Tyranny, Tyranny uh, Manual podcast. Uh, welcome to both of you, Iyad and Ahmad. It's a pleasure to host you. And uh, I would like to start by congratulating you on such a well-written well-argued book. I very much enjoyed uh, reading through it. Um, uh, what I found very interesting uh, reading your book is your own personal story and how you both engaged with the Arab Spring, um, even though you were not on the ground in the, uh, uh, in the areas where these demonstrations started. So can you tell us uh, more about you about your own background story and what motivated you to write this book. Uh, what did you aim to achieve out of this book? So I'll, I'll start first and then hand it over to Ahmed uh, because we had, as you mentioned, we had uh, two very different stories coming into this. Uh, me, you know, at the time, 2011, I lived inside the Arab world while Ahmed uh, lived in Europe. Um, so my own background as a Palestinian uh, is not very unique for a Palestinian, uh, 
but I think uh, it's a story that many people who are displaced uh, can can relate to. Um, just yesterday, we were discussing this in a, in a kind of a lighthearted way on Twitter, where someone asked, uh, you know, what gives you anxiety at an airport? And I said, you know, my surname is Al-Baghdadi. I had an Egyptian travel document. I was born in Kuwait. I lived in the United Arab Emirates. And everybody is confused by, that, by, by my travel document. Uh, in 2011, I, had, I was 33 years old. I lived in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, I had only ever lived in that country. Uh, my, my parents uh, come from Yaffa, from Palestine. Um, and, uh, you know, after the Nakba, uh, the families split up, uh, you know, uh, as, as, as happens with many refugees. And I think many Syrian refugees today kind of relate to the experience where families become split up and, uh, uh, and planted in different places. Um, uh, it was not a very, I mean, at the time, I was not well known as an activist. I was simply someone, I mean, my background was really in, uh, believe it or not, in games development and the startup consultancy. Uh, we made computer games and uh, cartoons. Uh, but then at the time, in 2011, it felt there was this growing um, feeling that this entire Arab order uh, was illegitimate and that some sooner or later it's going to break. And I, I remember in late 2010, uh, this growing frustration, this growing humiliation, this uh, especially among Egyptians, Egyptian friends, uh, uh, as I remember. Uh, when the, the uprising started in Tunisia, I would say uh, it was confusing because many people did not expect that protests can change anything. And uh, if you remember in the 2010s, um, you know, there were waves, uh, you know, a wave after wave of, uh, of, of, uh, of militant activity. And it was always perceived that, you know, nonviolence is not, is not going to be powerful enough to budge these regimes. And so after the, the, the success of the Tunisian revolution in, you know, 21st of January, 2011, uh, it appeared that everything has changed. It appeared that a new chapter is open and that now that this has worked in Tunisia, it's going to be attempted any, everywhere. Um, I started tweeting on the 25th of January, 2011, uh, basically on the very day of the Egyptian uprising. Um, and I very quickly gathered you know, a, an audience on Twitter. And from that vantage point, um, even though I lived in the United Arab Emirates, which was, you know, far removed, I mean, 22 Arab countries, 20, 20 out of 22 Arab countries had protests. The UAE was not one of them. Um, uh, but then in, you know, from that virtual world where you're able to, you're able to receive information, receive uh, um, uh, reports from all across the region, but you're also able to Kind of do your own fact checking and you know doing your own translation. I thought that maybe what I could do is act as a kind of political interpreter in a way. Uh, since you know I had a good command of the English language, there weren't many. I mean, there were a lot of uh, media attention for the Arab Spring, but at the time there weren't many people of my generation out there trying to explain what's happening and trying to drive kind of the counter the narrative of the of the of the autocracies at the time. Um, and, you know, whether it's a good or a bad thing, I quickly gathered an audience. 
um, and from that position, of course, uh, I became, uh, you know, influential, I guess. Um, it was around that time that we started talking, Ahmed and I, uh, we were kind of really bonded over certain intellectual projects. There was this, this feeling that um, what's going to come next? Um, there was this feeling that, I mean, I think this feeling really persists that we're at the precipice of so many broken paradigms and we cannot turn to another failed paradigm to say that this is what we want to replace dictatorship with. And I think this is something we can come back to. Um, in 2013, um, it, it was that week in 2013, August 2013. And I think this, this, is, this is a week that I mentioned, I can think a couple of times in, in the book. Um, two very traumatic events took place. The first was the Rabah massacre in Egypt. And the second was the uh, the Duma gas attack the, the, in 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 Syria, and this happened within within a week, within I think within ten days of each other. Uh, up till up to that point, it seemed that uh, even though the ruling autocracies are trying their best to to control the situation, um, they had to contend with the the power of the masses. There was a sense that they, you know, there's a certain line that uh, they might try to step over, but you know, they, they, they're, um, they're careful about what they do. But that week changed everything. And I remember, I remember uh, experiencing that week, thinking there's going to be a wave of terrorism after this because so much blood has been spilled and so much trauma has been caused. And sure enough, in 2014, you had the rise of ISIS. Uh, you had, you know, the the, the 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 war against ISIS. But then, in from my own vantage point, I was arrested uh, uh, in 2014 um, in the United Arab Emirates, and I was asked to leave the country. Of course, as a Palestinian, there's nowhere to send you back to uh, because they say you have to go back. Back where? I've never, I've only ever lived in the in the UAE. And you can't ex exactly, exactly send me back to, to Yaffa. Um, and so as a result, I stayed in prison for a while, after which I convinced the prison authorities to send me, because the default was to send me to Egypt. And if I had been sent to Egypt, I would be disappeared. I think I would be you know, tortured to death or you know, just, uh, just disappeared. Um, and so I convinced them to send me to Malaysia, uh, where I was stuck in the airport for about a month because I didn't have the right papers. I basically, I'm, I'm stateless. I continue to be stateless to the day. Um, long story short, I ended up being invited to speak at a human rights conference in Norway. I applied for asylum. Um, and, um, you know, we continue out this because we actually started our collaboration even before my expulsion. And I think I'll hand it over to Ahmed to, to kind of, uh, you know, give you the other side of the story. Yeah, I've always enjoyed the the dynamic of our collaboration coming from uh, different backgrounds. Yad being the stateless Palestinian born and raised in the Arab world and living his entire life within there until his expulsion um, as an adult. Myself being um, the child of Libyan expats in the UK and having been born and raised um, in the UK and the Arab Spring basically happening um, just as, as I entered into adulthood and was uh, beginning to um, grapple with questions of identity. And I remember extremely vividly that 
17th of February 2011, uh, the day of the beginning of the Libyan revolution was um, the first day, the first time in my life up to then that I had regarded um, the Libyan side of my identity with pride. Up until then, um, the entire MENA region was just synonymous with corruption and dysfunctionality and repression and, and nothing good in my mind. Um, and I think the interplay between um, someone born and raised outside of the region, but deeply invested in it and with family there and, and, and visiting regularly with someone who was born and raised inside the region and only left late um, is an interplay that we have uh, within our work. Thank you both Ahmed and Yad. This is a very touching and inspiring personal story. Um, one of the chapters that I found most interesting in your book is the introduction where you decided that there's a lot of myth busting about Mina that is necessary to clear the air before going into the rest of the book. And I can tell you um, as someone from a Syrian background, I identify very much with nearly all these myths and misconceptions about the region and its people and what, what they deserve. Uh, I really got tired of having to repeat the same counter arguments again and again to people. And I was really pleased to see that someone have decided to take on the job and put it, put the answers in eloquent, clear language in a book that I can refer people to. So can you please uh, tell us more why you chose these myths uh, and misconceptions in particular to bust? And if you can kindly elaborate in particular uh, on the assumption that there are only two written choices for this region, either tyranny or extremism. Well, thank you for your, your note about this particular chapter. I was actually surprised that uh, that chapter uh, happens to be the one that people like the most and cite the most, uh, you know, even though it's only the introduction. Uh, and I think that only confirms the need for that chapter because we thought at the time that uh, you see the the Mena story is a human story. I think this is this is where it comes down to, and this is this is the part which is most important if someone is to get this a lesson or or you know uh, a message out of the book. This is a human story, and uh, the people of the Mena are human beings after all. Uh, they have been exceptionalized for so long, exceptionalized as Muslims or as Arabs or as you know, ancient people or ancient hatreds or as various sects. Uh, and all this does is uh, really, I mean, the word, the word exception here is, is maybe painful because it really is saying these very human things apply everywhere but don't apply here. Uh, and so I felt that, uh, and of course, the, the reason why we, we came up with this particular list is based upon endless uh, uh, debates that we've had mostly on social media. Um, I mean, when 2011 uh, came, came around, uh, me and people of my generation did not really, people living within the, the region, we really did not have an outlet other than social media. Uh, we really couldn't, like we couldn't write books. We, li we lived in repressive autocracies. We couldn't exactly form an NGO or even go into academia or journalism. Social media was our only outlet. And uh, for this reason, I think, I think this, is, this is one reason why a lot of our output happened to be mostly on the most open of these platforms being Twitter. But uh, as part of that, we had a lot of debates with a lot of people across time. Uh, and it became clear that these are repeated 
themes that we thought, okay, before we get into the book, before we start to tell this human story, we need to de-exceptionalize or humanize this region so that because if you go in with this mindset, you will not really be able to read the story. You want because in the end, the book is really at least half of the book, the first half of the book about history is a history of legitimacy. It's a history of how the people of the region have had this relationship with their governments and how the, the you know, because if, if we only speak about politics or political history, we're only going to be speaking about the story of those in power. On the other hand, if we tell a people's history, then we're only going to be, again, we're going to only be taking one side of it. But we thought that maybe when we talk about legitimacy, that is one concept that ties both together. Um, and so this is uh, uh, this is the reason why we you know why we thought this this uh, uh, this chapter was necessary. So um, I mean I have I have a, I have the book uh, open electronically in front of me, so I can basically go over them very quickly. But maybe I thought I'll go over the first two and then hand it over to, to you, Ahmed, to to cover the, the rest of them. Uh, the first of me, these myths is the myths of ancient hatreds. The idea that the reason why the people of the region do not get along, or there's a lot of uh, you know sectarian tension, is because the the people of this region have never gotten along, and and you know they're essentially different, and they just happen to be packaged into the same region for you know somehow, uh, and for that reason, it is not possible to conceive of any kind of normal democracy in the region. Um, and of course, this is the reason why this is frustrating is because. People, even people who, who should know better, and I think we quote Obama in this, um, you know, they, they sometimes lean on this. Now, the response, of course, our response is really two, two part. The first is that we should not be talking about sectarianism, but about sectarianization. Sectarianization, uh, sectarian, sectarianization is the process by which the, the, those in power inflame narratives of separation for political gain. In the end, uh, people could organize themselves, you know, into in and out group in so many different ways. Uh, sectarian um, uh, affiliation is not is, is always fluid. I mean, there were there were times, for example, where certain sectarian groups, certain sects in the region, did not really identify themselves on religious basis, but rather on ideological basis uh, or party basis, etc. And this has been very fluid throughout throughout the, you know throughout time. But I think the most important most importantly for me really is that the same the same myth can be applied anywhere in the region uh, sorry anywhere in the world we can talk about this when we talk about the european history you know europe had two devastating world wars 100 million people died in two world wars uh, but somehow they managed to find a peace with you know with the rise of uh, you know uh, regional integration projects such as the european union etc we can talk about we can, we can we can apply the same thing to East Asia, you know. With uh, again, we can talk about ancient hatreds. Of course, I'm I'm here using this sarcastically between the Chinese and the Koreans and the and, and the Vietnamese and the Japanese. We can apply it to the United States itself, you know, with its race relations. So why do we apply this only to in support of autocracy in the manner? But when we apply it, you know, when we actually acknowledge, you know, these kind of tensions elsewhere. Uh, this is not tied to, you know, this is actually tied to, to a narrative of affirmation of the need for democracy. 
Um, so that's the first of these. Uh, I mean, of course, and, and we write we write uh, you know a couple pages on this. Uh, the second uh, of these myths is really this eternal choice between tyranny and extremism. Um, and this is something, of course, which th this this choice, this false choice between tyranny and extremism, is something that our dictators know how to play on because our dictators know. I mean, one of the chapters of the book is really about the Syrian uprising and how this, uh, you know, how the Assad regime needed to make sure that this is a war against terrorism in order, you know, because he could not win a popular uprising, but he could win a war on terrorism. Um, there are, of course, two groups that, I mean, because this is a narrative which was always pulled in order to deny majorities. The majorities in the region, of course, are Arab Muslims. Um, and if you want to have, a, uh, you know, if you want to have a democracy in the region, it has to be based upon, upon majority rule. This, of course, is is uh, uh, is scary to certain groups, um, not least, you know, uh, uh, Arab dictators themselves. Uh, and we see, for example, that, uh, you know, um, uh, regional tyrants, especially Mohammed bin Zayed. I mean, we mentioned Mohammed bin Zayed specifically because he was he's been a skilled user of this of this narrative. This idea that um, you know uh, anywhere there is democracy in this region, uh, Islamic extremists will win. This is of course not you know the data does not actually point to this. History doesn't point to this. Uh, the fact is that I think this is something we could probably uh, uh, I know from from the the list of questions you we discussed ahead. Of, uh, of the session, I think that you might want to come back to. The idea here is that Islamists should not really be seen as, um, uh, as theocrats as much as right-wing extremists or right-wing populists, let's say. In other words, Islamists, we've seen this across the region. Sometimes they win elections and sometimes they lose. It is not a foregone conclusion that anywhere there's elections they're going to win. Um, uh, it, it's a fact that sometimes in the region they, they won, sometimes they lost, sometimes they had to to form coalitions with with secular parties or liberal parties. Um, this is uh, you know this is part of the uh, this whole myth that Muslim majority countries are always going to elect Islamists, and I think it's it's, it's simply not true. Um, I think I think I would stop here and hand it over to Ahmed, and Ahmed, you can can handle the rest of the. Uh, uh, of the myths here. Yeah, just to be quick, I think what all of these myths uh, have Ahmed, in... If I, if I may ask, just, uh, I mean, uh, first of all, thank you very much, uh, uh, Yad, but uh, Ahmed, going through the rest of the myth will be also um, very interesting to uh, dig deeper into the uh, confronting the assumption relate assumptions related particularly to foreign interventions in the region, including the assumption or the conclusion that uh, to correct the damage caused by foreign intervention that the region should be left alone or that the borders have to be redrawn. So it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, what all of the myths have in common is an argument that the problems of the region are in some way inherent. Um, they're either part of the water and soil of the region or they're in our DNA, um, because of the conclusion that that leads to is therefore there's nothing that can be done about it. And uh, we can just uh, go ahead and self-enrich by uh, allying with dictators, or we can manage the disasters and allow them to only affect the people of the region as long as they don't spill over outside. Um, and obviously, 
um, it's morally repugnant if it turns out that actually these problems aren't inherent and they're being kept in place by a system of institutions and incentives, um, which is actually the case as we argue. Um, so we try and uh, we try and explain um, some of the um, most deep institutions, which are the interplay between terrorists, tyrants, and foreign intervention, and the way they um, legitimize each other and, and give rise to each other's presence. Um, and the Europe is really dealing with its own role in this over the last half a century or more. Um, it's causing a lot of soul searching. Um, it's causing a lot of um, political conflict within Western democracies as um, as they try to, you know, figure out what the role is, what their role is in the future. Um, after these incredibly expensive population don't even actually uh, done anything good either for the region or for the countries themselves. You know, Americans are angry at the Iraq war. Withdrawal isn't actually a withdrawal. It's just withdrawal um, whilst continuing to uh, enable institutions of uh, repression through arms sales, etc., um, or it's an attempt to escape from uh, the uh, to escape from their own complicity, um, because institutions have been set up which repress people, and that causes cycles uh, to happen. So what we argue is that there is no um, the most eloquent quote is quoted it in the book or not, uh, but you can't plunge a knife nine inches into someone's back and then withdraw it seven inches and pretend um, you've made amends and, and that's it. Um, but fundamentally, um, we argue that the, not just the region, but the world is interconnected. Um, and if your neighbor's apartment is on fire, you can't just pretend that that's not going to affect you. Um, because when the fire spreads, it will. Um, and the world has to think longer term and, and think responsibly about what can enable the region to eventually become peaceful and prosperous. Because uh, that's not just good for the region itself, but for the entire world. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you did indeed. Thank you so much, uh, Ahmed. Uh, yeah, I would like actually to go back to the argument you lightly touched uh, upon now in your previous um, um, uh, answer, which is really the argument that you put in your book that political Islamists should not be seen as theocrats, but actually uh, should be seen as right-wing populists. I mean, there are many implications that come out once we apply this assumption. So can you tell us more about that, please? Well, I started to see, uh, I started to view it in, the, in these terms really uh, around 2014, 2015 with, uh, or really after the, uh, uh, you know, af after the destruction of the ISIS caliphate and after it became clear that the ISIS caliphate is going to be just one more of these terrorist projects that comes and goes. 
because right at the heel of that, uh, you know, if you if we remember the context at the time, 2015 we had um, you know uh, the war against ISIS, and by 2016 we had the rise of this uh, wave of uh, of radicalization and populism uh, in Western countries, uh, especially inflamed around it was around the, the Brexit vote, but also the rise of uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, now I have this this background of uh, you know I was myself radicalized when I was much younger. Uh, this was 20 years ago, uh, in the aftermath of the Iraq War. Um, so when you know while I was kind of considering the the my own path to radicalization, of course, uh, 20 years removed, uh, you have the the wisdom of hindsight. Um, I kind of came up with what I call the radicalization roadmap. Uh, which I kind of came came by by simply reverse engineering my own radicalization, which is basically a, a process of otherization, where you say we are a group and you are another group. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also grievance, where you basically say that they are oppressing us, uh, and you resolve it. Basically, of course, there's a narrative of supremacism, where you say that we're better than them, uh, uh, and you resolve it basically by saying that you know we have to we're in, we're in, we're in a case of self-defense we have to defend ourselves, um, and that can very easily lead to the, the final conclusion, which is violence is the only way. Um, it was really based upon this, and of course I had I had developed this uh, this kind of mental model long before that, uh, and it was really seeing another generation. Of, uh, of people getting radicalized. Of course, in 2014, 2015, we're talking about Muslims getting radicalized into ISIS. And then 2015, 2016, seeing the same kind of psychological phenomenon, but among the Western world. Uh, and the, the narrative, the populist narrative, uh, which is again, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it was very difficult for me to ignore the similarities, the grand narrative between ISIS and between, of course, ISIS uh, took it all the way to the extreme and sometimes that itself makes uh, makes it difficult not to exceptionalize. Of course, I do believe that ISIS uh, were exceptionally uh, evil, uh, but I also believe that terrorist groups, uh, because they are very short-lived, they end up uh, affecting less lives than a dictator who will live for fifty years and you know grind human lives and you know uh, change the math and change really change history for 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 a very long time. Um, so this was the background to to me like coming to this realization. I think uh, uh, I was attending a talk by uh, my friend Mustafa Akyol, who's a, a, a Turkish uh, thinker and writer, uh, mostly writing about Islam and liberty, um, where he was describing the rise of Erdogan, and uh, he said, you know, we are not going towards anything that looks like Iran which is a theocratic regime, but rather towards something that looks more like Putin. Um, and I think uh, what he said, you know, now five years ago or six years ago is, has, proved, has proven quite prescient. Um, and I think it was, it, was, it was then that I started to analyze uh, these groups because even in my mind, I felt like, okay, this is exceptional. But once I started to actually look at them as populists, uh, and as part of the same identitarian movement, because these, this is, these are groups are, that are not really talking about Islam as a faith, but rather, rather as an identity. 
Uh, and I think there's, uh, there, are as many ident uh, there are as many populisms as there are identities. And because in our region we have the Arab identity and we have the Muslim identity, those are the, 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 you know, the majority identities. We have Arab nationalism, which is a form of populism, and we have Islamism, which is another form of populism based upon different, different kind of um, uh, identities. Uh, but then this age itself has, has us seeing a lot of different identitarian movements across the world. And I think that at the core of any populist movements, you have, you have a wounded identity. You have a people who are trying to reclaim an identity or reclaim a certain uh, mythologized um, uh, you know, uh, connection to some kind of lost past. Um, and I think that whenever, I mean, uh, I'm very thankful for my platform on Twitter because that allows me to speak and uh, communicate with people from across uh, the world each having their own political awareness uh, and you know their own political background, comparing the stories made it made it make a lot of sense. But I think um, what's most inter interesting here is that once you actually see this as really a story of another kind of uh, right wing populism, it serves to universalize it as well. It serves to 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 look at this as yet another dark side of human nature human, you know, dark, but also human. Uh, and that itself, you know, kind of gives us the edge of how to fight because in the end, you don't like when, when, uh, when the Americans, for example, elected Trump, nobody said, hey, this is the reason why you should not have democracy. Uh, you know, when, uh, you know, wh whenever uh, uh, another one of those democracies, uh, you know, falls prey to a, to a right-wing extremist or a right-wing populist, Nobody says, "Hey, this is the this is why these people are not fit for democracy, and we should we should never try, and we should invest in this in this uh, dictator who is going to you know uh, reform them." Uh, it's always a, a, a message of sympathy, saying that yeah, this is why we have to double down on democracy. Uh, so I think this is important. This this shift in perspective is important for uh, if if we are to really universalize the region, humanize the region, and commit to democracy in the region. I think this got a lot harder for a lot easier for people to understand since the rise of Donald Trump. Um, before it was again one of those things treated as a uh, an essential Arab phenomenon and something that's inherent to the region and only happens there. Um, and then people saw one of the largest democracies, is it the second largest democracy in the world, um, in uh, elect a man who openly promised to dismantle the institutions of the state um, and persecute minorities. And they realized, oh, okay, this can happen anywhere. Um, and it is a process of um, authoritarian leaders who take advantage of an identity which feels insecure in order to further their own um, political agenda. Um, so I think that narrative largely dismantled itself over the last five or six years. I believe you're muted, Dream. Sorry, I was saying thank you so much uh, for both of you. Uh, I mean, you talk a lot in the book and now in the conversation about the legacy of colonialism, the foreign intervention, foreign interests, and they left a huge legacy indeed, and introduced a very sticky institutional change that is not easy to undo in short time. But what about our own share of the problem? The people of the region, both the elite, the intellectual level, and also the popular level those who are inside the region, those who are outside the region. Um, I mean, do you think that there should be more ownership 
to the region's own share in this crisis factory. Isn't it, uh, I mean, like internal driven reform, isn't it both on the political, economic, and social level, isn't it much needed and very well overdue in your view? I mean, I, I think we need to strike a balance between um, this, uh, this tendency for us to, to kind of absolve ourselves from responsibility by say by looking at the external factors looking at the environment look at looking at you know colonialism tyranny etc and saying you know we don't have a lot of agency because because this you know we didn't really have a choice in this mm -hmm. but then there's another there's another narrative on the other side which also absolves you know all of these factors colonialism the world order etc and uh, you know pins it directly on personal responsibility alone i think the truth is really found somewhere in between I don't think we have as much agency as you know the libertarian sorry as the as the libertarian extremist thinks, uh, and we also have a lot more agency than the typical you know leftist extremist thinks. In the end, our agency even even someone who doesn't have agency uh, has some agency. I mean, even someone who who has very little agency has some agency. But you know, in the end, our agency is all we have. Um, so I, I think this is this is uh, you know the the formulation that I have been using really is that when we speak to the subjugated, we have to emphasize agency. So when I speak to my people, uh, I have to emphasize agency because my people are subjugated. I'm a Palestinian, you know, and uh, we we really don't really we don't control a lot of political power in the world. Uh, so we have to emphasize whatever little power we have. However, when, I, when I'm speaking about Palestinians, I'm speaking about my people, I'm going to have to emphasize those big factors, the colonialism, the, you know, the apartheid, the, the tyranny, et cetera. Because again, we're, you know, we cannot really understand the, 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 the region without understanding these, these issues. Uh, I do believe that uh, you know, in the end, uh, we have to take charge but I think this whole conversation, I think just for, uh, you know, before giving it to Ahmed to give her his perspective, uh, it's important for us to realize that this is an intergenerational um, uh, transition. So when we talk about, I mean, many people, when they talk about the Arab Spring, they, they're speaking in terms of 2011. Uh, in the book, we make, we, make a strong, we make a strong argument that we should really be thinking about, of, of, about it about, uh, as a 30-year process. We're talking about 20, a phase of history, 2011 to 2041, let's say. Uh, a transition you know, in world order, uh, many paradigms are going to break and arise, but also a transition demographically. Uh, a, a, a generation is passing on, a new generation is coming on. Um, we're very proud, for example, in our team that me and Ahmed belong to different generations and the other members of the team are even younger than Ahmed. Uh, this really represents uh, our belief that this is an intergenerational movement and the world in 20 years is going to be very different to, the world, to, to how the world is today. So, so, in fact, the last chapter of the book is called The, the Next 20 Years, where we're talking first, the, bo the book which was published 10 years into the 30-year proce uh, uh, process. Uh, and so when we're talking about agency and we're talking about change, we really need to consider, we really, we really need to consider the long-term view uh, because not all of this change is basically people taking to the, tr to the streets or people you know, starting foundations or writing books like we do. Sometimes it's simply one generation after the other getting educated, getting empowered, uh, you know, getting more skilled, accumulating more, more, more skills and talents, getting more successful in their careers, all of this, of course, is part of this transition. 
I'll give it to you, to Ahmed, uh, you, Ahmed, to, to add your perspective. Yeah, I remember some of the most inspiring things from the last decade being um, after the revolution in Egypt, when I saw people banding together to have um, committees to guard their neighborhoods in the absence of uh, police forces, when people were sweeping the streets and providing food in Tahrir Square, um, or even providing bodyguards to protect women from harassment. Of course, this went the furthest in Syria, where people were left without uh, state authority for the longest, and they set up local coordination committees, um, they provided education by themselves, they um, uh, set up media organizations. Our, our, our late friend Ra'id Ferris, may God rest his soul, had a whole civil society ecosystem um, from providing um, healthcare to sports for young people, to education, to media. Um, and this is the thing that's always inspired me most. It's the extent to which, when given the opportunity, our people have always seized it and taken ownership of their own situation. Um, there have been narratives for many decades um, blaming the West entirely for the ills of the region. Um, but when it comes to it, I think um, people are always, always eager to you know, seize control and make a difference themselves. Um, all we ask for is a level playing field where they have the opportunity to do this um, in safety and in freedom. Um, without, you know, missiles raining down on their heads and secret police um, collecting people in prisons. Um, it's, it's, it's just a removal of the factors that make these things impossible. Um, so that's um, the balance, I think, between um, the responsibility of uh, outside powers and the people on the ground. Thank you so much, uh, Yad and Ahmed. I'm going to now open the floor for questions from the audience. And please, I would like to remind you to time your question, not in the chat box, but in the question and answer box. And I will merge the first question with the question I had to you actually, because you rightly point out that there is this myth that the tyranny brings stability. Um, and, the, and, the, and the fact that actually, uh, the Arab Spring should have busted this myth, you know, with all the instability that came, particularly because of these dictators. Still, when we look at some of the policy options adopted towards the region, we still see strong traces of this assumption that this dictator will bring stability, so we'll close blind eye on him or her for now. Uh, so uh, many very sadly still make um, this very reductionist conclusion that the people of the region are not ready for democracy. Uh, now, we have a question from one of the audience, Ahlam Akram, asking slightly similar question or making actually the same assumption. And uh, what she's saying that the Arab Spring was intifada uh, against the dictatorship, but actually the people uh, were not ready for the much needed change, which in her view is the separation between state and religion. And she asked you like, do you think that the Middle East is really now ready for the democracy? So over to you. So the, the whole idea, I mean, the analysis that we take in the book for this, the question of being ready for democracy is that we tie it to, uh, to really the, the colonial era narrative that we're not, we're not ready for self-rule. So you had, um, sorry. So we, we, we ha you, you had, uh, you know, colonial powers, Britain and France mostly, the most prolific uh, colonial, colonize, colonizers of the region, uh, who at the time maintained democratic rights at home. 
but denied the same rights to the people of the region under the guise of saying that, you know, we have to prepare them for democracy. They're not ready for, uh, uh, for self-rule, so we have to rule them. Um, of course, that, that era after the Second World War, etc., ended, and we have the rise of local autocrats who kind of carry the same narrative. Instead of saying you're not ready for self-rule, what is democracy but self-rule? Uh, democracy is how people rule themselves. Uh, in fact, this is uh, this phrase "self-rule" to refer to democracy is very much, you know, very heavily used. For example, in the American context. Um, but then you have a different neo-colonial relationship. This, like this, uh, this uh, naked colonial relationship that existed before has passed. But then you have a neo-colonial relationship where these regimes, uh, sorry, these these democracies, uh, continue to support local tyrants. So they're not the ones who say you're not ready for democracy, but then the dictator says that, mm -hmm. and then they continue to support the dictator. So it's basically a continuation of the same narrative that says, you know, you're not ready. The thing about this, this, this idea about you're not ready is no people are really ready. Uh, in, in the end, democracy is something, something, you know, the argument is kind of like saying you should not go to the gym because you're not ready to work out. Uh, if, you know, how are you going to get ready to work out except by going to the gym? you get ready for democracy by practicing democracy. It's something that you practice. There will be mistakes. Uh, and we can see that even, you know, even uh, democracies as, uh, you know, as, as mature uh, as the United States is going through its own upheaval. It's always the case because every generation is going to bring, you know, bring a whole new set of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of challenges, but also new egos. You know, we're in the end, a lot of our political problems are really reflections of, of human ego in the end. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is uh, my, main, my main concern here. I mean, if, if we want to speak specifically about the, uh, the separation, as, as she mentioned, between religion and the state, um, I, I think I would, uh, I would actually quote Obama on this, where he says, we're, you know, we should talk about the separation between the church and state, of course, and church in, in, in his own context, but we cannot separate religion from politics. Uh, it's simply not possible uh, to do that without, uh, you know, without the stopping to be a democracy. Because in the end, you have Christian democracy, and you know, you have you have Christian dem democratic parties in Europe. As you can see in the in the United States, you also have a manipulation, religious manipulation in politics. This is always going to continue because we're human beings in the end. Uh, but in the end, I think if we look at the current um, uh, structure, uh, I think it's un it's it's it can't be. Um, uh, you know, it, we can't escape the observation that uh, uh, narratives based upon religion have become kind of like defanged over the last five years, five or 10 years, mainly because the dictators are as skilled in using religion to support their rule as the opposition is in, in using religion to oppose their rule. So there's always going to be this, this uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, and I'm talking here as someone who has a lot of debates among the dissident communities, a lot of dissident communities, even those who are privately quite religious, realize that we can no longer we can no longer uh, um, rely upon religious narratives, mainly because these religious narratives are going to be countered by other religious narratives as well. Um, the, the, the question in there, I mean, I remember in 2012, 2011, especially in the Egyptian context, a lot of the conversations at the time was about the, the, the relationship between religion and state. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to talk about this and, you know, might, might end up being a lecture in, 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 it, uh, in itself, but it was healthy at the time. I mean, of course, it, it, was, it was not pleasant. And a lot of these discussions were angry, but it was healthy because we had to talk about it. We cannot talk about it if we're not practicing it. And we cannot come to a solution. I mean, in the end, democracy is really about you making mistakes and then correcting the mistakes in the, ne in the next cycle. The difference here is that, you know, when this happens in a Western state, uh, democracy is affirmed. The whole world affirms democracy. But when it comes to happens on our side, democracy is questioned. And then, uh, uh, you know, it becomes a matter of, uh, you know, you're not ready for democracy. And like I said, you, you, really, you, you can never be ready until you practice it. Thank you very much, Yad. Uh, I also would like to remind people and the person who asked this question about the separation between state and religion that actually the history tells us a different story. Uh, more than 100 years ago, when the representatives from all over what used to be called the greater Syria, that's the modern day Syria, Palestine, Jordan, and Lebanon, when they gathered in Damascus in what they called the first, the Mu'tamar Suriyam, the Pan-Syria Conference, to write the first constitution for the region, they actually wrote a very secular constitution. They actually managed to put a very uh, well-defined line between the state and the religion. And that came after lots of arguments and, and deliberation. It, it wasn't just imposed from the top. Uh, and they treated everyone as citizen, not, not as um, uh, uh, just uh, not in a populist way, like they are Muslims or Christians that we want to, kind of, to manipulate and run. So they treated them with respect. And it's only the reason why this constitution was not implemented, although it was agreed by all the elected assembly, is this the fact that France came in and told them, well, thank you very much, go back home. Uh, I am the power in this country. I am the one who writes the constitution. So they, they just took them to uh, square one. So where we look actually at the experience of the people themselves sitting and gathering and discussing, they realize that the region is very diverse and it's not, you know, the, the Muslim representative realized that there is a Christian one, there is a Jewish one, and that actually together they have to meet each other in the middle and write something that is good for all of them. I'm going to move to the next two questions and we're going to extend uh, a little bit, maybe five or ten minutes because we started a bit late. So uh, I'm going to take two questions, one from Oscar Jens, who's uh, a bit worried about the oil money, oil money running out in the region. Um, and he's saying that Saudi, United Arab Emirates and Qatari money was actually playing a big role in keeping this staggering regional economics like Egypt and Jordan stable. Uh, but because of all the policies about climate actions, renewable uh, uh, technology, uh, the pr gas prices uh, will go down and uh, there is no escaping from the fact that the oil money will run out and he wants to know your view on this. And we also have a question from Philippe who would like to hear more about the vicious triangle the, that you talk about in your book. So I think maybe we should start with the second um, with the second question about the vicious triangle. Ahmed uh, was the person who wrote actually that chapter. So you should uh, you should explain this part, Ahmed. 
So the vicious triangle is a symbiotic relationship between three factors in the region. One is authoritarian rulers, the second is foreign intervention, and the third is extremist groups or terrorist groups. Um, and the basic structure of this relationship is that um, repression by autocrats is always carried out either in the name of fighting terrorism or in the name of uh, defending against foreign intervention. And likewise, uh, terrorist movements always justify their actions in the name of fighting against autocrats to liberate the people or liberating them from uh, foreign powers. Um, and likewise, foreign interventions are mostly carried out either in the name of um, bringing democracy um, and liberating the people from an autocrat or in the name of um, overcoming terrorism. And what actually happens is each of these three doesn't remove its opponents, but it strengthens the logic for them to exist. Um, so a foreign intervention can be carried out in the name of bringing democracy as it was in Iraq, for example, um, but nearly 20 years on from that, and what's actually happened is democracy or functioning stable democracy is further away than it ever was, and terrorist groups and extremist movements are more deeply entrenched in the country than they ever were before. Um, so in that section of the book, we go through a number of case studies um, to show each side of this dynamic um, and how um, any attempt to overcome part of this triangle using another part is um, ultimately self-defeating. Um, and all three pillars basically rest upon crushing the agency of the people themselves. And the only way this cycle can be uh, broken is by empowering um, society itself to resolve its own problems and take control of its uh, situation. Um, on the point of oil, um, whilst it hurts me to say this, um, I think that they can't come soon enough um, because all that's happened with oil is um, creating you know, a bottomless bank account for those who control the institutions of the state and use them to repress the population. Um, as a, an example from my own country, Libya, um, we still have uh, you know, a country in which healthcare is at a bare minimum and people still routinely die from basic preventable diseases. And yet in 2011, the world's most powerful military alliance, NATO, was bombing the country on a daily basis for nine months and still had not finished um, destroying the weapons caches buried in the desert by Gaddafi over 40 years. All he did with that incredible wealth, some of the greatest wealth ever seen by humanity, is uh, stockpile weaponry. Um, what's uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE doing with it now? Um, you know, you see the reports of the lavish spending, um, the the wastage. You know, yachts, football clubs, at a time when unemployment is rife. Um, the the fact is that oil wealth isn't a net positive for our societies because of the oil curse. Um, and what's happening is that the Gulf monarchies at the moment are using that wealth to prop up an order which is fundamentally unsustainable. Um, and without those injections of cash, most of these countries would have crashed a long time ago and something more sustainable would have risen to take their place. Uh, thank you, Ahmed. Uh, we have two more questions. Uh, one from Diane uh, Dark. She's asking, uh, what do you think of the current rehabilitation of the uh, Assad by Jordan and the United Arab Emirates and others in the region? And from Caroline Roland, who's asking, um, isn't the actual power grab of the president uh, in Tunisia a proof uh, of autocracy in the MENA? Will Trump 
democracy. And we also have a question from Facebook. I think they're referring to Raid Faris. They're asking whether any more information available about your friend Syrian civil uh, ecology. Uh, could you just remind me of the first question? It's uh, uh, what do you think of the current rehabilitation of the Assad by Jordan and Emirates? Right. So I mean, I could I could give you a, a geopolitical analysis here about about this rehabilitation. Um, uh, there is a growing sense that the United States basically is packing up itself, uh, packing up its its stuff and leaving. And this basically is really started after two thousand eight with uh, with you know when when uh, Obama took office and one of the first things he wanted to do was leave Iraq and end the wars, etc. This is something which is uh, seems to be bipartisan policy because whether it was Trump or Biden or Obama, uh, there is this sense that um, America Americans are simply tired of all foreign entanglements, and so uh, there is this sense that you know so we need to sort our region somehow to kind of you know this is again this is not between the people and each other but really between the the regimes and each other. This idea that um, you know we we need to survive somehow in uh, a potentially very turbulent time when uh, the smaller uh, you know smaller and wealthier uh, countries in the region can no longer count on American uh, uh, you know direct American support or protection. Uh, in the case of Assad, um, the problem here with with predicting the future of Syria is really that Assad is supported by two regimes. Uh, you know his own the existence of, like the, the sustainability of his own regime is dependent upon the Russians and the Iranian the Iranian regime and the Russian regime uh, both of these are themselves not sustainable uh, the Russian regime of course is itself a petro state it, it itself is uh, one of those countries which is highly dependent of course highly centralized but also highly dependent on fossil fuels uh, you know someone has has once described it as uh, you know, a gas, you know, a gas, uh, 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 you know, uh, a gas field with nukes. Um, at the same time, the Iranian regime, of course, is having, of course, it, Iran is a big country. Uh, and, uh, you know, it by by all means, it should be an important country. And it is an important country in the region, uh, both culturally and, you know, politically. Uh, but then the regime over there is really, you know, is really through uh, going through a crisis right now, because it seems to be transitioning from uh, being somewhat something of a theocracy to some to more of some of something that looks like a military dictatorship, it is also dependent upon oil, and it is it is also you know there are uh, you know one part of the, sto the the story of the Middle East that we could not cover adequately in the book is the popular uprisings in Iran because they actually came before uh, you know they the, these these started before the Arab Spring the 2009 uprising in Iran but the, they continued until very recently. Uh, so this, these two things, the fact that the, the Assad regime itself is dependent upon external support and that external support itself is not guaranteed, uh, makes it very difficult for us to make, to make predictions. Um, but then again, I mean, I, I think this is something I wrote, I think in 2019, because right before, I remember um, the Sudanese uprising of 2018 happened a mere two or three days after uh, Sudan's uh, previous dictator, Omar al-Bashir, visited Syria to also take part of this rehabilitation of Assad. And only a few days later, his own people rose against him. Uh, and as you know, removed him. Um, 
you know, in a world in 2011, Assad seemed in 2011, 2012, up to 2013, Assad seemed, uh, you know, unusually repressive. When you compare him to other Arab dictators who were, of course, very repressive, but they didn't really gas their own people or, you know, drop battle bombs on their own people. Uh, not that we think that, you know, they, they're not, not capable of it, but at least this is what happened. But then in 2019, 2020, Assad next to Mohammed bin Zayed, Mohammed bin, bin Salman, is right, he fits right into the frame. He fits right into the picture. So from my point, as someone who, I don't know if you could consider this radical or not, um, you know, the more this regional order delegitimizes itself, the more we march towards a solution. Because I think that this, this regional order is incapable of reform. And I think the more uh, it advertises how unsustainable it is, the more we can band together to resist it. And just quickly, the question on Ra'id Faris, um, I'd refer you to an episode we did on our podcast, Arab Tyrant Manual. Um, it's called The Man Who Built a Civil Society in a War Zone, and you can find out more about him and what he achieved during his life there. Great, thank you, uh, Ahmed Iyad. I'm going to take this last question from uh, Reem bin Diyabir, who is asking uh, whether you consider the role of education in further developing um, the behavior of habits of the people in the region, particularly the, uh, uh, the attitude towards uh, democracy. Yeah, this is a, a really interesting question. Uh, I mean, I want to zoom out and really like uh, uh, make it a bigger question. The question is, what is the real influence on these new generations? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, there, there was a time in which um, a lot of the influence came from the states. You know, whether through direct indoctrination or through education or through, you know, uh, their censorship of information. Uh, in the book, we actually cover um, the change, the most important changes happening in societies when it comes to information. Uh, I think this, this, we cover this in chapters five through seven. Uh, and we really talk about how one of the most important changes has been expanded access to information across the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, internet penetration is above global average. Internet penetration actually increased after 2011. So like uh, many people speak about 2011 as social media uprisings, etc. Uh, while in fact the biggest increase in the uses of social media happened after 2011. Um, it's also the fact that uh, more Arab youth are literate than ever before. Uh, I think if you look at the if you look at the figures, there's there's maybe 150 million uh, human beings across the region who are transitioning into adulthood. There are young people becoming adults. Um, and they're the single highest educated. A cohort in the history of the region ever. Um, the the, the, the old-style censorship models have failed. Uh, people have the ability to log in anywhere. You know, they have, they have their phones, they can log in and get access information anywhere. Uh, and there is a certain normalization of certain social media, sorry, social, social justice issues around the world. So, I mean, we mentioned this in the book that, you know, someone who is, um, we, whenever we see a global uh, um, campaign, for example, for women's rights or for children's rights or for refugees' rights, et cetera, it is bound to have implications or reverberations within the region itself. Uh, there was a time, for example, where if you're growing up as a, as a woman in Sudan, um, you have a very, you, ha you have a certain expectation of what information you're going to be exposed to. 
while today, you know, you can you can go on Instagram and you're able to, you know, to access uh, ideas from all across the region, uh, sorry, all across the world. Um, and this, of course, is going to have an impact. I, you know, we, we may be too close to see what the impact is. Uh, but just to, to touch on, on education, since that was the question itself, and of course, this is one of the main problems in the region is that education, education levels, uh, I mean, public education is lacking. Um, and at least in the country where I grew up, um, in the United Arab Emirates, it was, you know, everybody went to private schools anyway. Um, and of course, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, maybe not as easy for someone who's not middle class. Uh, but but the fact is, uh, you know, this continues to be a problem, especially, you know, I, I might link it to a previous question about the, the rancher state and about the oil, uh, you know, oil money. Uh, the rancher, a rancher state basically is a state that does not really need to, it, you know, it's self-funded. It doesn't really, like, instead of uh, the, com the country itself being, being uh, sorry, the government being funded by taxation, uh, it is funded by all wealth, by, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, natural resource. So it really, uh, the, the relationship between citizenship and the state is kind of like flip, flipped around. But one of the main uh, issues here is that uh, even in these wealthy states, the educational system is lacking. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, I mean, it, it would be interesting to to uh, to follow a few accounts. I mean, certainly, if you if you if you if you text me on Twitter, I would recommend a few people who have been doing a lot of research and a lot of work on this. There are brilliant uh, people from within the MENA who have identified, uh, you know, education as one of the most important areas of reform. But I also think that uh, uh, access to information uh, has really exploded, and I think many people will be surprised. I, I would be surprised if, uh, you know, uh, if young people in the region aren't as, at least as, um, uh, you know, their, their, um, their, their political sensibilities, let's say, are as uh, shaped by what they, what they read online or on social media or on YouTube or on WhatsApp uh, as they are by, you know, their, their formal education in school. Uh, Iyad uh, and Ahmed, thank you very much. We're coming to the end of our event today. I very much enjoyed the conversation with you as much as I enjoyed reading your book. Uh, thank you very much. Good luck in all you do in uh, running the Kawakbi Foundation and your activism and indeed in the, your uh, new book project. Um, uh, thank you very much for all the attendees. Sorry for having uh, run over time. Thank you for your very engaging questions. And please uh, keep tuned to the uh, Twitter uh, account and the website of the LSE Middle East Center for our future event. Thank you very much and hope to see you with us again. Thank you so thank much. You. Bye. Yeah.